Welcome to Pictures and Dialogues. I'm your host, Ajayshwar Sharma. It's been a while since I've uh, recorded a recent episode. Uh, I think admittedly it was back in September that I recorded my last episode. And what we'll consider this is the launch of the second season of Pictures and Dialogues. So thank you for joining me. It's been some time, but the benefit of having now a break between episodes is that I've had the chance to watch so many films and I don't really have the list in front of me because there's two in particular that I want to talk about. Last week I saw something absolutely phenomenal and it's something I've watched before. It's of course by a modern American auteur and that term is not really used that lightly by film fans or film critics or audiences but his name is Paul Thomas Anderson and His work is something that is completely unique and extremely, extremely um, um, articulate, well-crafted. His vision for uh, his films is unlike any other American filmmaker, or or even, for that matter, unlike any other filmmaker. Um, He was really sort of, um, he came up in the, the early 90s, with his film Boogie Nights that had Mark Wahlberg playing the uh, the the porn star. And after that, he came up with Magnolia, which was, I think it was almost a three and a half hour picture with Tom Cruise. A lot of biblical narratives um, and biblical metaphors throughout the film. It doesn't really make too much sense if you're not following it. But it is, again, a great, great film. And after that, I believe he made... Um, There Will Be Blood, which was one of the most um, highest, well-received, praised pictures over, I think, within the past, um, not this past decade, but within 2000 to 2010, because I think it came out in around 2005 or 2006. So it was very well-received. And immediately um, after that, he didn't make a uh, film that you know was as well received. He made Inherent Vice, uh, which was sort of known as the stoner picture with Joaquin Phoenix. Um, again, not an entirely coherent picture. I did attempt to watch it a few times, and it's not as exciting or as engaging. It really is, I think, an homage and a tribute to uh, the Big Lebowski of the Coen Brothers which was also a stoner picture, but had so much more humor and so much more um, appeal to it just because of the way uh, Jeff Bridges um, acted in the film. It was just amazing. And after Inherent Vice was the film that I watched uh, recently. Again, I've, I've seen it before, but I, I didn't quite follow it again. Paul, Paul Thomas Anderson's work is, um, you know, you really have to pay attention to his details and the pace of of his films um the one that i watched last week again is called phantom thread and it's just so nice to see a movie like this uh the score is perfectly used what i've always loved about paul thomas anderson's films is that he uses his score amazingly throughout the film he picks up whenever he feels as though the audience is um, probably feeling disengaged, at, you know, although they shouldn't, but he suspects if they are going to feel disengaged at some point, he knows exactly 
that music is one of the greatest pieces you can use in film to bring them back in. It really helps propel and maintain the tone that the filmmaker is trying to achieve. So with Phantom Thread, he um, puts together this film that is about a very conscientious and uh, meticulous uh, tailor, and he essentially crafts uh, dresses with his team of uh, ladies, and the dresses are known to be, very well known to be, um, of high caliber, and this is why his clients are, um, I think at one point during the film, he makes a wedding dress for extremely high uh, public official, and the clients that he has are those who are um, probably known as the elite of, uh, what is this, mid-19th century um, uh, Europe. So what a lot of um, has been shown in the film is that um, his character, um, um, his character, not Paul Thomas Anderson, but um, Daniel Day-Lewis, who does show that he is extremely dedicated to his craft. He's extremely dedicated to his work. He's extremely settled in his routine, and he cannot be bothered from that. And if he is bothered, it impacts his work. And I really love the way um, Anderson um, shows this character that he gets so irritated if somebody, even um, the way um, that they're chewing their food, and if you've ever um, been so close with somebody where you know, for example, the habits that somebody has, you know, those you can, I guess, accept at first, but after a while they may become pest-like and they may become very irritating and annoying and this clearly irritates and annoys him and so what he does is he um he continues to um note it and he continues to um show and make it very obvious that it is irritating him and anything that gets in the way of his work seems to very much upset him so Daniel Day-Lewis apparently considered this his final role in film, which is extremely unusual because he's a great actor. And for those of you who know, he's come in so many other great pictures. Like I said, There Will Be Blood, um, and also in Martin Scorsese's um, Gangs of New York. He's known as a chameleon, and he can really disguise himself into a role. He's been admired uh, by um, theaters, by international actors, um, he's very, very well known for how much of a method actor he actually is. And surprisingly, you know, Daniel Day-Lewis does do a great job in the film, but it's his co-star, his wife, that does an amazing job as well. Um, her dedication to him and to essentially, um, I think what she tries to do throughout the film is she thinks that she can change him but she realizes that there's no chance of changing him. Um, it's it's not until that you know a critical a critical event happens in uh, Lewis's character's life that he has to reassess the importance of the people that he has so close to him. And you know, although like I was saying, this man is somebody who has extremely um, conscientious work ethic. He's very orderly. He's entirely dependent. Um, 
on the women in his life. He's entirely dependent on the his um, his sister first and uh, for first and mostly, and after that, it's his um, it's his wife. Well, at first, it's technically his his, his girlfriend, but um, they get married um, throughout the film or later on in the film. So it shows that you know Lewis's character is again a essentially madman, near genius, working on his own in isolation, but. He surrounds himself with people who are there for him and who can take care of him. And they're, you know, without without them, he may not be able to function, or his routine would not be as concrete or as uh, regular if it wasn't for the women in his life. So, I mean, overall, Phantom Thread again, very very well received by critics. I would highly recommend it. It requires a bit of patience um, at first, but um, it's such a nice film and such a rare picture that you would not see and it, it was only made in 2017 so i mean films like this are not made that often if you want to get a change of your mainstream hollywood blockbuster uh, marvel pictures and you want to actually see what american cinema is capable of this is exactly it um i don't even think this film received as much recognition as much um, recognition um, as, as it should have but I, I do feel that it it should have given the level of, of detail I think the only appreciation and acclaim that the film received from most people is that the production design was um, great the costumes of course were um, amazing and I think that's it, but the score and the soundtrack, um, I guess more so in this film it would be known as the, the soundtrack, are, are extremely nice. Um, it's just a piano melody, but it is a theme that is reoccurring and that rings frequently throughout the film. So Phantom Thread, highly recommended. And if you haven't seen any of Paul Thomas Anderson's work, please do watch. He's a very knowledgeable and... Um, um, talented filmmaker and he is um, you know also well respected by his colleagues that people know more about like you know Quentin Tarantino or even David Fincher for example so Phantom Thread highly recommended all right so the next film that I watched um, actually just last night um, I've been wanting to watch this film for quite some time now. And, you know, here's a funny story. I was at the uh, Toronto International Film Festival a few months ago in 2019. And I was in the queue for the rush queue specifically um, to go and see this movie. I think I had waited nearly, I would say an hour, an hour and a half just to see um robert eggers's um, next picture the lighthouse so i was in the queue and i was also monitoring the online tickets of StubHub, and i did see one available i was by myself i did see one available and it was for 60 bucks you know i think it started at almost 120 but of course as you get closer towards the film the seller is, of course, just interested in selling the ticket immediately. So it went from 120 bucks to about, you know, 67 bucks. And I did not buy it because I was also 
willing to take the risk to see whether I could actually get into the film in the rush queue. And I, I, I swear to you, I could have been at least maybe um, 10 to 12 people ahead of me. So that means um, none of them got in. And unfortunately, I didn't get in as well. So I was so close on watching the, the film at TIFF. I would have loved to have watched it in a theater um, on the big screen. And funny enough, uh, I think it was two nights before that day, um, we were actually in the, um, the queue for, um, I think it was for Parasite, and the stars Robert Pattinson and Willem Dafoe um, had showed up at the Ryerson Theatre because that's where the film was technically premiering. It was the one immediately after um, A Parasite. And I remember walking through the crowds as soon as, you know, the black um, Cadillac Escalade and the, the large executive-style suburban vehicles had arrived. Um, I had walked right past Robert Pattinson and right past uh, Willem Dafoe. So I did have a chance to actually see them in person. And it was quite nice. Um, I was, you know, fanboying, fanboying for... Um, a brief moment in time, and I was yelling Robert Pattinson's name because at this moment I had also known he was going to be the next Batman. So I remember just screaming his name and trying to get a photo of him, and I was pretty close to him. I, my, I was probably within you know two meter uh, distance of, of Robert Pattinson, and then Willem Dafoe I saw as well, and I was very surprised at how short he was. And it's funny because in this film now, The Lighthouse. Um, one of the um, insults whenever these two um, get into a fight. Um, one of the first insults that Robert Pattinson throws at Willem Dafoe's character is that he's a short man. <laughs> so I found that very funny. So the film, of course, that you can imagine that I watched, like I mentioned, Robert Eggers' The Lighthouse. And it is something very unique. Robert Eggers now, um, you, know, you may have heard his name before. His first film, his debut film was The Witch, um, but it was stylized to known to be known as the Vavitch. So a lot of people that watched this film were expecting a very typical standard sort of um, jump scare horror picture. When in reality, it was a very um, extremely terrifying film in terms of its tone. And I still remember discussing this with um, my friend who said they didn't like the film because at one point, you know, there's... You, know, you get to see what the witch kind of looks like, but you also don't see what they look like. Early on in, in the witch, um, or the witch, you get an idea of what, you know, you know that there's a witch that exists, and you also see the witch, but the issue is that it doesn't sort of come up again later on in the film until I would say about the end. It's not so much about the witch, but more about the the family dynamics and a family that falls apart. It's a period piece. It's extremely terrifying, like I said, in its tone and in its visuals. And I was very surprised to see something like this because horror films, like I said, we're entering now a new wave in uh, this horror um, film genre that is just great, especially for American cinema. So now we have um, his next picture, The Lighthouse, and it's not necessarily a horror film, but it is more of a um, psychological genre piece that essentially 
puts two um, wikis or lighthouse keepers together and they're required to maintain the lighthouse but it's essentially also the descent into their um, madness because they're completely isolated they have limited supplies um, there's sort of this power struggle dynamic between Defoe and Patterson's characters that ultimately does expose itself and you know the 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 lighthouse itself starts to also fall apart um, as the film progresses um, and then you notice that the characters fall apart the relation that they developed um, if any if you want to call that a relation that also falls apart so everything ultimately falls apart at this lighthouse and you think that you know the premise itself is very exciting you have two people stuck um, on in you know an isolated rock with a lighthouse and just a bunch of seabirds, cold water. And the premise itself sets it up to be very exciting, you know. And you're you're sort of wondering now as an audience member what is going to happen in the film. It's essentially a lot of exchange of dialogue, um, very specific and um, accent heavy dialogue but very very well researched to actually show us and to um to see what you know the the lighthouse keepers how they would have talked um back in i think this is set in the 18 late 1800s or early 1900s um to see how they actually would have talked to one another so again this this film it, it is entirely shot in black and white and i just actually re recently learned that it wasn't just shot, um, sorry, it was shot in black and white, but it wasn't shot in color and then color changed to black and white. Like they really ensured that they were shooting on a negative um, Kodak film so that a lot of the colors themselves would then show up as well to being black and white. Because if you're still shooting in color and then you then change it in post-production, to black and white a lot of the natural colors and for example even the characters um, sorry the actors eye colors will not look as authentic so and there's this critical scene in the end of the film where there is blood on a character's face and you know you're you're seeing essentially a black and white film from beginning to end but in this moment what you're supposed to see is red, but you don't. It just looks black. So the film is also not just shot um, on black and white film. It's also the aspect ratio of the film is smaller. So I think the standard for most videos and for most pictures nowadays is 16 by 9. But the aspect ratio for this was, I believe, 1 to 119, which is essentially a box, and it feels very compressed. Um, this is how films back in you know the early 1900s were actually shot on um, early films without any sound, uh, without any dialogue, silent films. This is how they were actually shot, and it very much feels far more compressed. But it also helps enhance the viewing, and it helps the aesthetic of the film as well because it feels as though you are stuck on the rock with Robert Pattinson's character and Willem Dafoe's character. Um, the lighting itself really assists with that. When they're having dinner um, together, when they're having the uh, discussions back and forth in their bedroom with just the one light on, it feels very congested and very campy. But 
in a good way. It doesn't feel as though you feel the picture is dark or you can't see anything. Um, the lighting is very critical to this film, and so was a lot of the other uh, technical aspects of the film, such as the editing and the cinematography, the sound design. Constantly rigging throughout the film is the air horn from um, the lighthouse, and it has this terrifying, ominous um, presence that I just I loved it. And overall, the film, you know, you may not find it as um, clear or as coherent as you would want a, um, a picture like this, but it's not supposed to be. It's supposed to be open to interpretation, and it's supposed to be very, um, I wouldn't say actually very ambiguous, but it's supposed to be ambiguous because a lot of the way the scenes have been put together, um, the film is crafted in a way so that you yourself are wondering what the hell is going on here. And you also feel as though you are going to be going mad because a lot of the dialogue and scenes that happen, the characters um, contradict exactly what had just happened. It's very unusual. So you know that you know there's a clear um, sense of urgency going on. These two people, these two characters are clearly going insane. We don't know which one has gone insane first. And essentially what the lighthouse represents, in my opinion, is this sort of hierarchy of um, morality. So the the lighthouse itself is guarded by Willem Dafoe's character and a lot of the struggle and conflict that arouses, um, um, arises, sorry, not arouses. I hope the lighthouse does not arouse <laughs> any of the characters, but the, the conflict that arises between both characters is guardianship and safeguarding this lighthouse and Robert Pattinson's character is sort of questioning as to why he's being treated um, as sort of a inferior subject, and he continues to hear the word insubordination, insubordination, or that he's insubordinating the orders from Willem Dafoe's character. So what happens after that is that Robert Pattinson's character wants to eventually see um, what is contained in the lighthouse, and I won't tell you what is contained in the lighthouse, um, I'll let you figure it out and to see your, yourselves when you do watch this great film. So I did really enjoy The Lighthouse. It's a film that, again, similar to the one I'd mentioned earlier, Phantom Thread, that does not happen or get made very often. I would highly recommend it for film fans. And for those of you who are also not fans of film, but to see what, you know, um, film can be done. It's it's no longer just your, um, although I did watch it on Blu-ray and, and 4K um, resolution, it's, it's amazing to see what can still be done with a film like this. It's amazing to see what a talented filmmaker like Robert Eggers is capable of envisioning and then also executing with his, uh, with his team. They went to a lot of, um, you know, detail from everything from the costume design of Willem Dafoe's um, placement of his pipe to his beard to his eyes you know radiating in this one monologue that's you know it's terrifying um, to the actual lighthouse itself um, I also learned that the lighthouse was designed entirely from scratch and they actually built and constructed the entire set and it's it's just amazing because when I'm looking at it it looks as though it's an actual real 
lighthouse, but everything was made with practical effects, and there's very, very limited CGI, I would say, um, in maybe just one or two scenes. Other than that, it is truly a testament to the fact that Robert Pattinson is able to act like this. Um, he did great, by the way. At first, I thought Willem Dafoe would have been the person who would have carried the film, but the um, character of Robert Pattinson is far more um, complex and far more range uh, was required, in my opinion, from Robert Pattinson to act and to show what his character was going through. So overall, The Lighthouse is an amazing film. Highly recommend it again. And that's it. Those are the two films that I wanted to talk about. I hope that I will record another episode shortly within the next week or so. Um, of course, with everyone being isolated now and the increased spread of coronavirus, um, also known as COVID-19, um, I figured this was a great time to record and also a great time for people to actually listen to podcasts. So again, thank you very much. Again, I'm your host, Tajesh Rasharma, and this was Pictures and Dialogues.